Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Miriam Boeri, sociologist and associate professor of sociology at Bentley University. She's also an author who joins us for an important conversation about drug use, family, and cultural conditions as we discuss that in the context of her new book, Hurt, Chronicles of the Drug War Generation. Miriam Boeri, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I I really appreciate this. Well, the bigger thanks, too, is the fact that you have this incredible commitment to something that is so critically important. Really, I am going to say to each and every one of us, and you are doing it through your work, through your teaching and sociology, but this newest book that you are sharing with us, Hurt Chronicles of the Drug War Generation, is really a book that all of us need to read because, again, it's something that affects every single one of us, even if we don't necessarily find ourselves in that realm of being an addict or having been a casual user. We're still all affected, aren't we, Miriam? Well, I think so, especially with the current uh, opioid epidemic. I think almost everyone knows somebody who is affected by this. And, And that's it. Yes, we are touched buy it in that way. And I'm thinking in terms of even the greater picture, just kind of setting the tone for our conversation, is that all of us are affected by the way that those who are using any kind of drug, alcohol being included in it, is how we are impacted by it. And we need to understand it and really find ourselves being part of a solution, which you are really studying here, researching, and providing some great insights for us, I believe. Well, thank you. I mean, yes, I am absolutely, this has been my life's work for the last 20 years. And actually, since I um, started this, I have done about, I'd say, seven or eight different uh, research studies. Uh, Most of them have been funded by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And what I do in my work is I go out and talk to actual drug users, not in treatment, not after they're done, although some of them I, uh, I, they were former users, but most of them are active drug users. And I'm talking about what we call the hard drugs, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, opioids, and uh, crack cocaine as well, and find out what's going on in their lives. And that's what this book came from. Uh, I talked with people that were... 45 and older, and had used heroin, one of those drugs, after they were 35. The reason I chose 35 is because there has, there has been a theory that has been used for years, since the 1950s. Uh, his name is Charles Winnick. He was an addiction specialist, and what he found out was that generally most people mature out of heroin use and other hard drug use by the time they're 35 or 36. And this was, this was proven with evidence, supported with evidence, all the way through that people generally mature out. If they're using hard drugs and they have a problem, it's usually in their younger years, young adult years, but by 35 they mature out because they become involved in social roles that take precedence in their life such as family, work, other things in their life where the drug use interferes with. What changed? 
and which is why I interviewed older users, what changed in 1971 was the war on drugs. 1971, we declared war on drugs, and we responded to all drug problems from marijuana on up to heroin with jail and prison. And what that did was start a whole generation who became adults in 1971, which were the baby boomers, a whole generation that now had a criminal record and time in jail and prison, especially for the juveniles who went to juvenile detention for drugs. And when they got out, they had a criminal record. And this is what the book uh, talks about. It stopped them from maturing out because they could no longer follow that typical life course pattern of if you have problems in your young youth or young adult time, you typically are able to get a job, to get a family, and to join, you know, general society, and the drug use falls away. But they were not able to do that because they could not join society in the typical life course pattern. They now had a criminal record. Some of them became criminals because they were, they were in prison, and that's their education as a juvenile. And they continued to use drugs after 35 years old, up into 45, 55. And what researchers like myself and others have discovered is that people are no longer maturing out. They're maturing in drug use. Yes. And heroin being one of them. And I think this this recent uh, opioid epidemic just shows that what we've been doing is not working, number one, but it's increasing use of all drugs and with heroin and opioids, it means increasing the death rate of drug use. So that's why we're very, very concerned right now, especially since the younger generation are now coming up into this. Exactly. And so there are so many factors here. Again, this book, Hurt Chronicles of the Drug War Generation, is so critically important to us because, as you mentioned, Miriam, you you have first-hand stories uh, of people. It, you actually kind of honed it down to 38 case studies, correct? I did, yes. I, I uh, had 100 people that we interviewed that were um, age 45 and older, up, up to 65, who had used one of the hard drugs, mainly heroin, after age 35 and most of them in of the 38 were still using, but half of the 100 were still using these drugs. And I interviewed the half that did not use to see the differences in their life, uh, which I go into in the book, between those that have, were able to stop after age 35, because it's much harder to stop after age 35, because your life now has been, you know, mainly drug use and the consequences of using drugs during the war on drugs. Exactly. And, uh, one of these people that I talk about in the book is my brother, Harry. And, and, uh, and he, w- he gave you his blessing that you could share his story. Well, of course, so did all the other people, but this being qu- quite a lot more personal, it feels, being family. But he definitely, I, I feel, wanted the story shared so others could really benefit from all that he has had to endure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Uh, because Harry, my brother, actually was in prison for 30 years of his life. 
It started with juvenile detention for being for using opioids. This was back in the 60s. So not this opioid epidemic, but an earlier one that we had in the 60s and he was only 12 years old. And and uh, started using opioids and became addicted to them, and so he robbed pharmacies to get them. And he was put in juvenile detention from 12 to 18. So when he got out at 18 years old, he had already had an education inside a juvenile detention home, which was not like the homes today. Um, they were pretty rough. And then the first, uh, he tried going, you know, getting a job, and, and um, he couldn't, he couldn't find one, just sometimes he found a part-time jobs. And then his first arrest afterwards was for marijuana, which, again, got him in, got him a uh, criminal record as an adult, and it just continued uh, down the road there. So I actually take my brother's story and all of his time in prison and what, he, what happened after he got out of prison and how I helped him in different ways, and then I also include all the 38 stories. So everything that happened with my brother's life is reflected in the 38 stories of the people that are in this book and I talk about. They, they all have um, pseudonyms, so I don't give their names away. And I also, you know, do not talk about certain things in their life that could, the, they could be recognized. So they remain anonymous. But my brother's life continues and, and adds adds to the book showing what's going on with my, with my brother's life as I'm doing this study and listening to other people as well and how their lives really reflect what's going on with my brother's life. And in sharing these stories, what's important for us who might wonder, why is this going on? Why has this been happening? It's really is such great insight because we see how... You know, thinking of Harry and some others at that young age at 12, why mm-hmm. are these young kids, even today it happens, what's happening? And and you build that culture for us to see what has been going on in their life to place them in this situation where they start using d- drugs around them. Yeah, and that's, what I, that's why I use a, a life course story, because people like to hear stories. So it's not just, you know, one transition in their life. Um, I go through like what what was happening in their lives historically uh, when they were younger, and when did these different uh, drug we have have had different drug epidemics over different decades, and when did these happen, and how were they affected by this? How were people affected that were of different races, which is very important because once the drug war focused on different areas, especially in the inner cities, this totally devastated communities that before were integrated communities, and now they are devastated by the war on drugs. People that I've interviewed who have been in prison for any amount of time all suffer from being in prison, but minority communities, people that are from minority communities and try to come back and have any kind of job or family, they have suffered worse. And that makes the whole community suffer because women are left without fathers that help support their kids. Parents have sons and daughters in prison and jail that they have to help. And when they come out, 
creating a greater burden on them as they get older. So as Michelle Alexander has showed us without any doubt at all, she wrote a book called The New Jim Crow. This war on drugs has been the new Jim Crow for black communities. And I also bring this out in one of my chapters as well with uh, a few of the lives that I've talked about in this chapter is, is probably the most devastating to read. They are. So much of this is so tough, but so critically important. We really owe it to ourselves in order to understand and then to really collaborate, to be instigators in solutions. But to be clear, there isn't a one-size-fits-all type of solution for this. We need to be open-minded about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, yes, because, I mean, although, you know, we do need to look at changing, of course, the legal consequences of drugs and and uh, not put people in prison for it and in jail, which we're just starting to do because the opioid epidemic is is impacting the white community, specifically the middle-class white community, more than traditionally all of drug use has has impacted uh, lower um, lower middle class and and minority communities. So now that it's impacting people that are can you know we hear their voices and they're they're saying we need to do something else and not put these these kids and these uh, our children in jail in prison. We're starting to give them treatment. However, what I also found out from uh, these older drug users is that the treatment that we are giving them often is not working. And you can see that by the relapse rates. I use a trajectory uh, in my book where you can see how many times they relapse and how many times they've been in treatment. And overall, the average is being in treatment from 7 to 15 times over their lives and always relapsing. So I, I look particularly at the relapse and what's going on when they, when they have a relapse. And... Um, Typically, it's a social reason why they're relapsing. So I want to address that in the book, and I want to bring out that without social solutions, all the medical treatment, which we need, we need medical treatment, we need mental health treatment, but without social treatment, they're going to relapse. It's not going to work if we don't look at this holistically. There's an historical reason for why we have drug problems, and it's a social reason when it becomes at such a point as it is today where everybody is being affected by this, as we talked about earlier. So if we don't address the social reasons for why this is happening and help the people socially that are, that are in recovery and are hurting from this, then, then it's not going to work. And what's most important is it might be a little bit late to um, help those that are the people in the book that are already, you know, past uh, 45 years old or 55 years old, but we should really be concerned about the younger generations that are coming up. We can help them the most by, by making sure that we don't use the same consequences that we did for drug use as we have been doing for the baby boomers. Now, I do have some hope for the baby boomers. Most of the baby boomers that I talk to that are in recovery want to help others to learn how to live their lives socially 
even though they do have this problem. And uh, I talk about that in my book, too. It's called Social Recovery, Inc. is a uh, website that I'm getting together to share more of the stories of how people have been able to stay off of uh, problematic drug use and continue their lives, even though they did have problem drug use before, and hopefully it will help the younger generations that are looking for more answers, more solutions. And along those lines, what comes through in some of the stories is how these individuals, these people will find uh, a work, meaningful work for themselves, and they seem to be hitting a stride, then then they have a glitch. Some sort of trauma occurs in their life. Uh, Those traumas seemingly similar, but, you know, different according to the person. But that seems to be one of the the social solutions is how we provide employment, which, of course, needs education beforehand. And so those are the pitfalls that really point us to the solutions, don't they, Miriam? Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, it's there. It's not a one solution, and there's not even one kind of person that is having, or you know, one kind of problem that led to the drug use problem. The problem drug use is really indicating something else, and for different people, it's something different. Um, for many people, yes, it is employment and education, and then you'll always have someone to say, "Oh, yes, but you know, this person came from a very wealthy family. Why was he uh, using drugs?" Well, you have to talk to that person, which is what I, what I do, is I talk to people and find out what, what was going on in their lives since they were young. Um, at what point in their life did they start having problems other than drug use? And what was going on in their life then? What was going on in their lives when, when they had a relapse after 15, 20 years of treatment and, and, and recovery? So what you find is there's different reasons for different people, but you can you can sort of find you know some uh, categories of what's going on, and many times it is some kind of abuse in childhood. That honestly, some people have talked to me and said they've never told anyone this because number one, I'm I'm a stranger, and so sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger than even a counselor that you know you're going to see next week again. But also they know that that they're going to be anonymous, and they're telling me their whole life story. And so as they're telling it, I will often come back and say, I'm writing down notes. I have a spreadsheet where we put down different things. And I say, okay, so what was going on here? Could you want to mind talking about that? And then out comes this kind of abuse that they never talked to about anybody. It could be sexual abuse. could be uh, emotional abuse. But that often comes back over and over again then in their life stories. Other times, it's like what we see right now. They were given prescription pain medication for something, back injuries or a car accident. And then many years later, they're introduced to a pill and they go, I just remembered that this made me feel so good. And I remembered that I feel like I'm a person I should be when I'm on this drug. So that's what we're looking at now. It sort of sets up their brain for thinking that this is what they need in their life. And it's very, very hard for them to give that up, especially when it comes to heroin. And so that's why we're looking at the neuroscience of drugs right now. And I'm very interested in continuing with that. But I don't want to forget that the social environment 
is important as well. Because even if they change their uh, physical addiction to heroin, they go back to their social environment and are still missing or having problems in their lives in the social environment, then they know that that drug is going to take care of it. And so it's so simple then to go back to it because it feels like the solution that's going to make things all better. Well, they know that it doesn't get better. They do know that, that their lives don't get better, but they can forget about it for a little while. Mm. It's so unbearable to be in this situation. Let me give an example because it's hard to, to talk in the abstract like that. There was one woman I talked to that actually had become addicted to heroin in her youth, and then she went to treatment, stopped for 17 years. 17 years, no drugs whatsoever, not even alcohol. And then she had an accident, and she was given prescription pill for the pain, and then she didn't get addicted to the prescription pill. She forgot about that. But then a few months later, she started using opioids from friends from the street. They were no longer prescribed to her. So you can see that she was sort of set up for this by using these prescription pills again. And I asked her, well, do you think those prescription pills had something to do with you becoming addicted to prescription pills? And she said, well, I didn't think of that before, but now I do. And I said, okay, what was going on in your life at the time? Well, she was having problems in her marriage. She had children, and she felt like she couldn't address these problems, but the opioids helped her to cope with them. So now when I met her 10 years later now, all of her children had been taken away from her because she went from opioids to heroin. And she didn't know how to get them back. She was trying to get them back. She was trying to do everything they said. She was on methadone. But you could see that she was still in pain emotionally because she had been separated from her kids. And she was coping with this pain with the opioids. And, of course, as we read the stories, we see where that then is really creating the next cycle, the next generation of people that will, again, potentially suffer from some sort of an addiction because we see that that emptiness, that void, that family breakdown in this individual's life, well, maybe not this woman's, but many of the people that you talk to, it's such a big impact. We just see that going over and over. That's where we have to really be aware and be part of the solution to address this. I mean, I'm actually glad you brought that up because, you know, although I haven't finished this research yet, right now what I'm doing is focusing on parents who had children taken away from them because they were using heroin or opioids. And no one wants a child be hurt because their parents are on drugs. And, you know, we've we've always seen the worst-case scenarios where babies die or our children are abused or something because of uh, parental drug use. However, most of the people that I interviewed, they had their children taken away not because the children were abused, but because they were caught being an opioid user or a heroin user for another reason, often because they put themselves into treatment and then they relapsed. So many times, I'll give you an example again, there was a woman who knew she had a problem, and she went into treatment, but she relapsed, and then her husband took the kids away, and then her parents took some of the kids, and so they split them up. But she just kept relapsing and trying to go into treatment. She also got in trouble with law enforcement, so she got a criminal record, 
And for 10 years, while her kids were growing up, she didn't have contact with them anymore. Then she was on the street one day, still using heroin, and she saw that her daughter, who she had not had contact with for 10 years, was on the street and involved in sex work. And so she contacted her daughter, and she found out her daughter was a heroin user as well. So now they're both living in a shelter together. I interviewed her daughter as well. Her daughter just had a baby, and it was taken away from her as soon as she had it. And when I talked to her, she told me all these things with no emotion at all. This was my life. This is what happened. She was very hurt, though, that when she didn't see her mother anymore, she didn't understand why. She knew that her mother was using heroin, but she didn't understand why she couldn't see her. But then when we talked about her daughter being taken away, she started crying. So even though all through the interview she didn't show emotion, the fact that her daughter was taken away, you could see, was so painful. And this happened to her mother as well. And so that's what I'm trying to see. Are there other things that we can be doing to keep the environment a little bit healthier for the families? Can we set up homes so the mothers, even if they're still struggling with drug use, they can see their children every day, the children can see their parents every day? Do we have to be so harsh on them? For example, I know that in Scotland, one of the people I'm working with, when I told her about these daughters being taken away and there was another woman that she's, she gets to see her baby once a week right after it was born because she's still trying to get off of drugs. And she can't nurse her child like that. She can't bond with her child once a week, you know, a newborn baby. And the woman in Scotland that I'm working with said that in the U.K., what they try to do is make sure that a mother that had a baby, no matter what's going on, that she still is able to see that baby every day. Can't we do that here? Exactly. And that is the gift, I believe, that you are bringing to us, Miriam Boeri, is that you share these stories so we can have the insight, feel these harsh realities, and really look at more loving, more humane ways to find these social solutions. Obviously, what we have been doing doesn't work. And so we have the opportunity to make change, and you're inviting us to be participating in it because, as you mentioned, Miriam, you have a a new website that's in process right now. Let's mention that. Okay, that would be Social Recovery Inc. uh, Incorporated. and uh, there was already a website with social recovery, so uh, the ink, we incorporated this to make it ink. And uh, we're going to be putting up stories of success uh, using social recovery and also um, how you can implement social recovery in your community. So eventually we would like to send train people in social recovery and send them out to communities to give training on how to incorporate that. And this is not taking the place of treatment. It is taking the place of, of jail, I hope. <laughs> and hope we stop putting people in jail or prison, all drug users, not just those that, have, that come from middle-class families, but all of them. And I do hope that we start looking more at the social reasons for this. It doesn't take the place of treatment. It's a complement to treatment. If people need mental health treatment, which is usually what is lacking, then it complements treatment. And it's definitely something that will continue after the treatment program is over. Social recovery can be implemented in many ways. It can be implemented at the individual level by just being a friend to people, 
And a lot of times, recovering users hang out with each other, which is fine because you have a sponsor, you have uh, other people that know where you came from. However, what's not good about it is that you don't get more networks. You don't expand on the people that you know, so that when you need something, like a job, all you have is your recovery network, and they're probably looking for jobs as well. Whereas what social recovery does is introduce you to new social networks. But we don't have to always keep people in recovery together. They can go out and meet new networks so they have more opportunities for social relationships and more opportunities for employment, more opportunities to be part of society. That is really a terrific recounting. More of these stories we can find by picking up our own copy. I think this is so critically important. The book is freshly new, Hurt. Chronicles of the Drug War Generation. Miriam Boweri, it's been so wonderful to have you join us because this is such a critically important subject. Thank you for doing this work, for being so committed to it. Well, I will continue to be. So if anybody wants to write to me, uh, my Gmail would be my name, miriamboweri at gmail.com. And if they'd like to be part of the network, we'll get them incorporated with us and maybe have this go worldwide if we can. I would like to think of this social recovery as a movement that everybody can be part of, not just a program, right? Yes, indeed. Well, again, many thanks, and we're looking forward to being a force of change, of important needed change in our world. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me and allowing me so much time to talk with you. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Miriam Boweri and Sunday Morning Magazine with Scott Anderson. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you would like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, Find the podcast on our Warm 106.9 webpage. Click on the on-air tab, then Sunday mornings, and then look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of healthy eating, healthy relating. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9, the station to pick you up and make you feel good. Good morning.